Welcome to the 144th episode of Reverse Threat Radio. I'm Andy Ryan. And I'm Toby Chad. Wishing a very happy 23rd birthday to Afghanistan's finest, Rashid Khan. We look forward to many googlies and helicopter shots to come. In this episode of Reverse Swept Radio, um, Andy, damn you, Andy, although I'm loving living vicariously through you, your um, late summer of cricket while here in Australia, we're all, we're all locked down, but you've been at, at Trent Bridge. Um, we are going to be looking at the uh, cricket, career, cricket career of one Lord Byron, and we're going to be reviewing uh, Brian Murgatroyd's new podcast series, One Test Wonders. Um, so, Andy, tell me about Trent Bridge. I've wanted to go for ages. It's been on my wish list and it's partly because a lot of cricket writers, both present and historic, who I really respect, often come back to Trent Bridge as sort of the idyllic ground. Um, so I would say expectations were high. Um, it is indeed very beautiful, um, although I have to confess that the newish Radcliffe Road stand, I, I'm maybe not a total convert to. It's, some of the brickwork reminds me of some of the classrooms in the secondary school I used to teach in. So maybe it was just bad, <laughs> a wonderful association bad mental associations. Your... Yeah. Having said all that, the view from up there is is pretty special, and it's you can. If you're not looking at it, if you're looking from <laughs> exactly. it, exactly, then it's quite spectacular. Exactly, and it really is because it's quite steep, and you can see you can get a lovely position, kind of right behind the bowler's arm. So, um, I went with my brother, and we got a, a good competitive day's play between Lancashire and Nottinghamshire. One curiosity that we were both very struck by, we didn't see a single ball of spin bowled through the entire day. And, you know, this was a September day. So in theory, you're thinking later in the year, um, sun-baked pitches. I mean, perhaps the issue is there just hasn't been enough sun in England this year. Mm. Um, as ever, you always want what you don't have. So we became obsessed with this, kind of desperately willing captains to give the spinner a go, but uh, sadly to no avail. Um, Trembridge has always been a bit of a kind of uh, nostalgic ground for me because it was the closest one to Norfolk where I grew up and we used to go on little trips, put a tent in the back of the car when I was a teenager and go to tests at, at, at Trembridge. And I remember sitting at the top of the um, Radcliffe Road stand and you can what's beautiful is you can see out to the countryside across the city, the hills in the far um, in the far distance. So it kind of, I, I look back on it with probably rose-tinted well, spectacles. This, you're absolutely right, and this may be geographically inaccurate, but I was sitting there thinking, ah, is that Sherwood Forest behind? It may well not be Sherwood Forest. And did but, Robin um, Hood see... come 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 well, riding it... out from the? Um... <laughs> is that is that but Robin Hood was... Sherwood Forest? Yeah, that is. Oh, absolutely, it? yeah. Well, it's quite fun, and this is obviously one of the many joys of the county championship is you can merrily rotate around the ground, and you know you can sit somewhere for yes. a bit. And and actually, we abandoned the Radcliffe Road Sun partly because we were heading for serious sunburn, so we went in search of shade and you go to one part of the ground and you get sort of industrial nottingham you go to another part of the ground and you get a view of the trees so yes that the variety is, is one of many things that makes it pleasant it's interesting you should say about spin though because um i remember being there when Muralitharan took nine wickets against England for Sri Lanka to win that, whichever test that was in whichever series. I'm guessing it was in the 2008, 2009, um, something like that, when it kind of seemed a bit like a, a bit like a, a, a spinner's paradise, but obviously not on the day that you were, you were there. Perhaps w one of those bowlers, I guess, capable of making uh, making many places into spinner's paradise. True. Now you've been you've been looking at. Uh, an interesting proposal actually and it's a proposal for a, a problem that sort of never goes away in the game of cricket um, a solution to the question of um, 
a fairer way of doing the toss. Yeah, so I read a lot of, um, I think we both read a lot of cricket articles, and uh, this one just particularly stuck in my mind, and I found myself thinking about this a lot over the last couple of weeks. It's an article on uh, Crick Info, um, uh, authored by Gaurav Sood and Derek Willis, um, and they look at the different methods used over time to negate the impacts of the toss on the game, um, noting that in day-night one-day matches, the game is won by the team winning the toss 5.9% more often, 6% more often, so that's a significant kind of um, weight on the on the game. It's a fascinating article. I'd, I'd suggest um, reading it, and I'm not going to regurgitate it all here, but what they actually end up proposing is that rather than having a toss at all that they actually you actually have an auction so that each team um, not knowing what the other team is bidding at the start each team simultaneously bids how many runs should be added to the opponent's score and then the team that bids the highest number of runs gets to choose whether to bat or bowl first so India are playing England India says we reckon that England should get an extra 15 runs England say India should get an extra eight runs India win India choose whether to bat or bowl first, but when England start batting, they start off with their score on 15. Um, and I just think this is an absolutely fascinating idea because mm. it brings in, you know, how you read the pitch. It brings in the kind of bravery of how many runs you're going to add to the opponent's um, score. It's this kind of in innovative answer to, as you say, what is a very long-standing question. Um, clearly, this is never going to happen, but I love the fact that, you know, in... Um, you know, we're often so so often kind of cricket articles about reporting what's going on, but just these little moments when you can just dream and play fantasy with with um, kind of innovations in the game, I think are really are really good fun. It would be fantastic drama as well. You know, if you imagine showing that or televising that before mm. the game, it would actually be far more. The auction would be far more dramatic than the toss. And um, it also makes me wonder a bit in terms of the context of the current England team, where they are obsessed with trying to chase. They love bowling first yes. in ODIs. It's sort of, and it would be a really interesting one. You know, how much would Owen Morgan sort of be willing to gamble to try to get that um, preference to chase? Uh, what, why not give it? You know, why not trial it? I think that that would be fun. If you trial it in perhaps village cricket or club cricket and yeah it, I, i'm uh, i'm uh, throwing my support behind this from the archives now lord byron is regarded as one of the great english poets his love life scandalized and fascinated society he fought and died in the greek war of independence he created through both his writing and his life the concept of the byronic hero but what does he have to do with cricket well andy is here to tell us Let's start in 1805, and we're just a few months before the Battle of Trafalgar, and the following letter was sent. The gentlemen of Harrow School request the honour of trying their skill at cricket with the gentlemen of Eton on Wednesday, July 31st at Lord's Cricket Ground. A speedy answer declaring whether the time and place be convenient will oblige. It turns out it did oblige, although the date was slightly different, and the first Harrow and Eton game took place on August the 2nd. It's now one of the most long-running sporting fixtures in the world and still takes place at Lords, uh, much, I think, to uh, some so, some people's pride and others', uh, others chagrin. Um, Lord Byron was a participant in this opening game. It's not entirely clear that he should have been, his captain, a certain J.A. Lloyd, wrote that 
Byron should never have been in the eleven had my counsel been taken. <laughs> it's it, nice to have the supporting for captain. Indeed, and also interesting to see that the captain clearly wasn't in charge of selection. Um, apparently, Byron was involved in that letter being written to Eton, um, and therefore sort of earned his way in the side that way. I think we've all got those players who don't quite get in based on ability, but have some other claim for selection. Yeah, whether you bring a nice tea or you actually can write, because there's something wonderfully theatrical about the idea of this game and this encounter, which is captured in that letter that you kind of read out and you could imagine kind of an aspiring poet, you know, looking for the the poetry in, a, in an occasion like this, even if they don't necessarily have the cricketing skill. Who did he, was Was he an, an, an Etonian or, or a Herovian? He was a Herovian. So it was the Herovians right. who issued the challenge. And yes, he was, he was a Herovian. And... Uh, yes, I guess you imagine with his life and particularly what came next, he was presumably incredibly charismatic. And I, I imagine he sort of, uh, when he demanded to play, that presumably came with some weight. Um, he had to bat with a runner. So, and this was due to a lifelong condition that affected his right foot. It was widely referred to as a club foot. Yeah, I was going to say, wasn't he lame? Mm. Well, sort of, I mean, lame's probably not the right, the politically correct yeah, word to he, use. But, um, I think there's still discussions now amongst modern day medics what exactly it was. But as I said, the reference at the time is that it is a club foot to, in, for his right foot. And But what I think is very interesting is it never held him back as a sportsman. You know, he was a very successful boxer and horse rider. Mm. Um, but uh, yes, as a cricketer, he wasn't able to run. So that, that was always a feature of his game that he needed needed a runner. Um, throughout his innings in terms of what happened in this game we're reliant on a letter that Byron wrote to a friend um, and he's quite pleased with himself he scored 11 in the first innings or he says he scored 11 in the first innings and 7 in the second and he considers this to be a respectable contribution given Harrow's low scores the only problem is that he didn't. The scoreboard says he made seven and then two. I think if we're being kind, we can say his memory may have let him down. But given the letter was written not long after the game, it feels more likely that he was nudging his scores up to respectability. Um, I can't judge him too harshly. It's a while since I've done this, but certainly as a schoolboy, I think I was occasionally guilty of um, returning home and uh, adding the odd numeral, maybe even the odd O to the end of my school. Well, I wonder whether if you've got a runner as well, maybe you lose count. You know, maybe he wanted to, or maybe he wanted to give credit to the the poor guy who had to do that twenty-two yard dash every, you know, every run. Um, but yeah, it is again the kind of poetic license inherent in that is quite um, <laughs> it's quite amusing. It's also quite gentle showing off, as in you know you're saying you scored yes. eleven and it's seven. Not, I got one hundred and seventy three. Exactly, it's, it's quite <laughs> modest showing off. Um, we don't know anything more about his batting performance beyond that he was caught in the first innings and bowled in the second. So um, yes, finding finding different ways to get out. Um, what is beyond dispute is that Harrow were well beaten, with Eton claiming victory by an innings and two runs. Byron admitted that we were most confoundly beat, so he didn't uh, he, he didn't attempt to sugarcoat the result. But he and his teammates were clearly not too distraught. The two teams went out on the town together after the game, heading to the Haymarket Theatre. Um, I quite liked this, and it felt like a very cultured night out, although it doesn't sound so cultured when you hear the description. Byron says, we all got into the same box. The consequence was that such a devil of a noise arose that none of our neighbours could hear a word of the drama, at which, <laughs> not being highly delighted, they began to quarrel with us, and we nearly came to a battle royale. 
just a quiet night at the at the at the theatre. That so was Byron a um he wasn't really sort of a name at that point, was he? This was fairly fairly no. early on. So presumably it's only in hindsight that we've come to kind of discover that he wrote wrote letters about this. It's not necessarily that the game would have this particular match would have gained any notoriety because Byron was playing in it and he was I think, known for who he was. That would have been in hindsight I think more. That's right. So I think he was from a notable family, but he would not he, he certainly hadn't he hadn't gained a major public profile at this point. I mean he did uh, obviously as someone who, who who died young, he did gain considerable fame while young, but at this stage I think he was either 17, 18, so no, he, he hadn't really got a reputation at this point. Um, he was yet to go up to Cambridge and and put the infamous bear into yeah. his rooms or whatever well, he, it was, wasn't he? he? Had a live bear or something? Oh God, well, I think pet th- bear. Th- th- this feels like the start of. I'm sure someone's done it actually. A sort of podcast series on the life of Byron. I, I have to say, his um, any article about him quickly. Uh, gets into the realms of descends. the uh yeah well the d- yeah. descends or ascends depending on your depending on yeah. your your um, your preferences depending on how you like your heroes um so that's pretty much it in terms of what we know of byron's playing career um but you know a playing career focused on a single game and making runs at lords isn't isn't a bad one we do know that his passion for the game was considerable um, and I'll leave you with the words from his first poetry collection, which was titled Hours of Idleness and written when he was just 19. Yet when confinement's lingering hour was done, our sports, our studies and our souls were one. Together we impelled the flying ball, together waited in our tutor's hall, together joined in cricket's manly toil or shared the produce of the river's spoil. <laughs> To the review, and for this episode we've been listening to One Test Wonders, a new podcast series by Brian Murgatroyd. Uh, It's begun in July 2021, there are seven episodes currently out. Brian is a broadcaster, a journalist and a media professional. He's formerly been a media manager for both England and Australia, which must make him, I imagine, quite exceptional, and also was a former ICC head of media and comms. In this podcast, he interviews players who have only played for their country at Test Cricket once. So in seven episodes released so far, he's spoken to six Englishmen and an Irish player. The format of these is, I think, pretty unique in the way he goes about these episodes. Um, How would you describe his approach? So um, Murgatroyd clearly loves his... uh, clearly loves his subjects and he loves the topics that he's talking about and the amount of research that he has put in is quite incredible so each um episode and they're about an hour long each focuses on a different player and in that episode he talks to the player about their kind of um career up to the point where they made their test debut um he talks in a lot of detail about the test match itself um and then he um goes on to talk about you know well why, why didn't they play um, for England more and what did their career um, look like uh, look like after um, after that there's a really kind of clear kind of structure to each one of them and as I say there's a lot of um, uh, Murgatroyd is very much a kind of details man which means that you do come out of it having a really kind of comprehensive um, 
overview of these of these moments, I suppose. There's a lovely moment that comes up in quite a lot of the episodes where a player will jump to something that happens later in the game. Yeah. And Murgatroyd sort of gently interrupts and says, we'll come to that in a while because he's got his structure and he is, you know, painstaking, you know, the night before the game, did you sleep? You know, what did you say to the new players in the dressing room who you hadn't met? Um, and it, it, I, I think, it, you know, it will obviously depend on your personal preference, but as you say, it, it does build up an incredibly detailed picture. I think there's the odd moment where the format is a little too rigid. Um, I, I was struck in the, the, the most recent episode with Kevin O'Brien, the Irish keeper, that Murgatroyd asks him, were you at your peak when you were selected? Uh, which is a question he's asked many of the players. But by this point, O'Brien had made very, it's very clear, clear that, that he wasn't. wasn't. Yeah. So I, I yeah. think there's the odd moment where it's perhaps too rigid. Um, and it's it's quite fun as well that exactly to your point with with O'Brien when he's talking to O'Brien about his about the about the game and. Um, O'Brien just at one point he just he just says, um, "Oh yeah, and the first day was a bit rainy, but then it was nice after that, and that was the game done." Yeah. <laughs> and, and that is the way that, if left to him, if left to an open question, that is the way that he would summarise his entire his entire Test debut. And one of the fun things about the podcast, I think, is seeing the different ways that people reflect on these games and on these on these moments. Obviously, a lot of them are happening. A long time ago it's, it would be harsh to say to someone who made their test debut last year to mm. call them a one test wonder and interview them about why they never played for england again so it needs to be people whose careers have obviously come to an end so they obviously have no chance of playing for um of playing for england and um it's 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 interesting sometimes how um murgatroyd knows more details about those games than the players do and he'll ask them questions about things and a lot of the time the answer will just come back I have no idea I have no memory of that whatsoever I can't remember how I felt about that the, the level of research I think earns him the players respect as well which I thought was a really interesting feature that and I guess this is true in any interview mm. really that if you turn up and the person interviewing you has done the research and God Murgatroyd has done his research um, it does it does sort of earn you that respect and you get the impression that in some cases the players are thinking about this stuff in some cases they're thinking about some of this stuff for the first time ever actually so you, you feel yeah. you're kind of quite privileged in a way to be hearing a player sort of process some of these things sort of for, for the very first time they all look back on it differently don't they it's, it's not it's not sort of the experience isn't the same for each of them no and I think that the you know everyone each of the players makes it very clear that they're very proud to have had any opportunity to play test cricket I mean everyone says how many people on earth have ever played test cricket it's mm -hmm. amazing that I got to do it once and the fact that everyone says that in almost exactly the same words kind of indicates that it is a bit of a line somehow you know whether it's whether it's believed or, or not and you do actually Murgatroyd does do a good job of kind of teasing out some of their feelings about how you know the the lack of a longer you know a lack of a longer test career i was interested in the um interview with paul parker who um played in the last test of the 1981 ashes so you know the the, the botham headingly ashes and he came in for the for the for the last game and it's really clear that paul parker to this day feels disgruntled about the fact that he wasn't given an opportunity in in the seasons that that, that came that came afterwards ditto you know tony piggott the um mm pace bowler who played in in new zealand um who comes up with this i think just quite a hilarious assertion that if he played in the previous test england would definitely have hmm. won so i think australia batted out a day um and he just goes well i, I knew the pitch if i'd been playing england would absolutely hmm. have won that game and it's interesting to hear someone looking back 30 years just making that kind of blunt an assessment of the whole thing 
And Alan Butch is interesting as well because he talks about his real regret being that he never got to know whether he was good enough because he didn't get more attempts. I mean, I think Murgatroyd clearly gets on with players. No surprise given the, his history. You know, you've been a media manager for two international teams. You clearly know how to get on with players. And he gets this balance right between... He prods, you know, he does tease the players, tease out of the players, that, that, that sense of regret. But he's very good at bolstering them as well. I mean, as you yes. say on the pride point, he keeps making that point. And he, he, it's rather nice. He finishes every interview but with a sort of statement to the player saying you should be so proud of what you achieved, which in the wrong hands could sound patronizing or corny but with yep. Murgatroyd I think sounds you know sounds very genuine yeah he's kind of a he's a he's a he's a, he's a fan and a supporter in that sense I think the players would think that he was on on their sides in terms of telling this story um and t- telling their stories one of the interviews which I think is just an incredible story is that the story of, of of Andy Lloyd who was um you know on his on his test debut was um was hit in the head um by Malcolm Marshall and um lost you know for the rest of his life lost lost my side in one of his eyes and just while he played cricket again it was never to the same standard at all and really interesting hearing um Andy Lloyd's you know perspective 30 years 40 years however many years later this 30 years later on how he feels about um his you know opportunity to have a test career kind of taken away from him and the just sort of sheer pragmatism and um you know that he that he sees and he just goes well it was what it is and actually Andy Lloyd says it was kind of easier for him because he just knew he was never going to play test cricket mm. again there was never this question of will I won't I am I being hard done by both selectors just straight away well it's just not going to happen there's just a just a you know hard reason why it's just not going to happen it's it's actually one of the real benefits of the rigidity of the format that you get to make comparisons across the different yes, players. Exactly, I was exactly. always fascinated by that question he asks about at what point did you give it up? And it's intriguing how quite a few of the players, they basically say never. Never. You know, they yep. say they never when I was really 38 and I retired up. from cricket. Yep. Yeah, and I think that I think that that was certainly a theme that came out. Um, they are chock full of anecdotes. Um, the, I enjoyed all of them. The John Stevenson interview was particularly fun. Um, getting to the ground and finding that Ted Dexter, who had selected him, didn't recognise him. Uh, David Gower then cutting short a coach's attempt at a pre-match team talk by saying that there's no point and they should just get on with it and do their best. Murgatroyd does enjoy drawing this contrast between the professionalism of today and the sort mm. of more amateur practices of the past, um, which I think uh, is, is interesting and obviously also a rich vein of humour as well. And I enjoyed, um, I think it was Paul Parker who gets a a duck on debut or only a couple of runs and he uh, in the rest day it's his son's christening or something and he goes home and the rest of the family are just basically taking the piss out of him for not having made more <laughs> runs on his um on his on it on his test debut so it is that they, they are as well as being you know an interesting reflection on this kind of idea of of the one test career um i think just the anecdotes around these games and these players are kind of um a really a really um colorful uh as well so that is um one test wonders uh i think ongoing podcast series the latest yeah. one released just a couple of days ago they've been coming out every week um hosted by brian brian murgatroyd um absolutely worth a listen and that was the 144th episode of reverse swept uh radio as ever you can find us over on twitter at reverse swept do we still have the twitter password have you been on there recently? We- <laughs> 
somewhere yeah <laughs> yeah okay we've still got the password so so let us know send a carrier pigeon if you get in touch via twitter um lead us re- leave us a review on your um on your on your favorite podcast platform and we'll see you for the 145th episode before long